Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Obi Fernandez. Obi is a New York City and Atlanta, Georgia-based author, consultant, traveler, and photographer. He has been involved in professional software development and consulting for over 20 years, and most recently has been involved in the startup world with a variety of projects. Obi is currently Senior Vice President of Engineering at 2U, a New York City-based platform for delivering quality online degree programs. Obi is a serial entrepreneur, and in the past he has been the CTO and co-founder of a number of companies, including Andela and Lean Startup Machine. He's also series editor for Addison Wesley's Professional Ruby series and an avid EDM DJ. Obi is probably most famous as the best-selling author of Ruby on Rails books. He's also the author of a number of books that have been published in various states of completion on LeanPub, including The Rails 4-Way, Lean Enterprise, and How to Eat Nachos and Influence People. He's also currently working on a new book called Serverless, Patterns of Modern Application Design Using Amazon Web Services, which he'll be launching very soon and which we'll be talking about later in the interview. In this interview, we're going to talk about Obi's professional interests, his books, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Obi, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you, Vlad. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us how you first became interested in software development, writing, and eventually in consulting and startups. Uh, sure. Um, well, I, I think I've been really lucky. Like a lot of um, technologists of my generation, you know, I'm, I'm 41, almost 42, and grew up in an era where it was cool to tinker with electronics and take things apart and to, you know, at school we, we got taught programming as early as third grade. So I was working on an Apple IIe and then and on it and learned basic and learned logo. And um, I think that that's a real advantage because the the concepts of programming at such a young age, it just, I think, has an amazing effect because uh, I, I don't know, it just feels like I can't even remember exactly how, when I started programming, right? It's like something that's been with me for a long time, but I, I did uh, eventually start getting into commercial software development with my friend Nate. Uh, he is my same age. He's been my best friend my, my whole life, but he uh, started a, a TV and VCR repair business um, at a young age, always entrepreneurial. And um, he had a storefront selling beepers, which were like the you know the pager things that, that people wore on their belts and, and whatnot, which not really used anymore. But at the time, they were all the rage. And uh, uh, responsible for the billing, and since we were both kind of hackers and, and whatnot, we wrote a software package that ran on his PC and used his modem to page his customers when it was time for uh, them to pay their bill. So they'd call back, you know, they'd call back and they'd hit a, a, a message that said that you know their account was due and whatnot. And we expanded that into kind of an account management system for beepers called Beeper Pro. And unfortunately, never went anywhere. We could have been like, uh, you know, software magnates of the beeper world or whatever. But, uh, you know, the, the little startup that we put together with a friend of his uh, to kind of leverage that uh, didn't pan out. Mostly because I think we, we didn't have the attention for it. Uh, but we ended up doing some early web hosting and I, I learned some small talk and I learned Java uh, and we got involved in a whole bunch of other things. Uh, I was DJing at the time, so I was having friends from New York come over and record sets for me to stream streaming 22K waves 
uh, at danceradio.com. A um, lot of interesting little projects. Um, and eventually I was able to get a job uh, at a professional business. This was back in 1995. Uh, and I, I claimed expertise with Java, which I'll admit now uh, was a little more, um, you know, fake than <laughs> the interviewer. But, you know, I had basically read Java in 21 Days, which had just come out or something like that. And luckily, um, I think uh, it, it was my first lucky break, you know, like it, it was a professional job doing programming when I didn't have a computer science degree and I didn't really have any sort of formal credentials uh, to get a job doing so. Um, but I, I was able to turn that into a series of jobs doing professional consulting and um, over the years, you know, have, have had a number of uh, lucky breaks, which together with hard work um, got me to where I am today. Um, consulting in general, I think, is a, is a great place, you know, if you, if you really want to keep your skills from stagnating, you know, especially if you're good and ambitious. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of consulting. Then I was at a startup for four years in the early 2000s. That was good because I wrote out the, uh, the dot-com bust, you know, the original dot-com bust. And then I ended up at ThoughtWorks. And ThoughtWorks during the, uh, you know, early to mid-2000s was like the place to be. Um, got to work with Martin Fowler, uh, Neil Ford, and a bunch of other kind of not notable people. Fred George, um, who has influenced me a lot on microservices. Uh, you, you know, it, it's, um, it's amazing what you can do. And it, actually, one of the common themes throughout, you know, especially since the early 2000s, has, uh, has been kind of constant self-promotion and blogging and, and that sort of thing. And maybe it's common with, with some of the other Lean Pub authors, but, but it's one of the things that I point to when I'm, when I'm coaching people or advising my friends. Like, hey, if you really want to get ahead, you know, pay attention way that you present yourself pay attention to the way that you credentialize yourself online uh, and I've done that you know I've had a blog since the early 2000s uh, first I was talking about Java had some little bit of notoriety you know in uh, open source Java uh, worked on some dependency injection framework stuff in open source that was kind of my first real dip into open source uh, and it just set me up to be in a position to talk about Ruby on Rails in a significant way in early 2005 and was one of the loudmouths that was saying, hey, this gives you 10x productivity gains over Java. You know, Java sucks and, and all this stuff and kind of being really controversial and brash and attracting attention. And, um, and that got me my, you know, my first book deal with Addison Wesley to write The Rails Way. Uh, later on, that led to getting the series editorship and then being involved in, in all the other great books in that series. So um, it, it all points back to, you know, always being active about wanting to share the knowledge that I get, you know, wanting to credentialize, wanting to blog, wanting to, to write. Uh, I mean, the, the first book was mostly due to something that a lot of us had or, or have, which is I'd like to write a book someday. You know, it'd be nice to see my name on the cover of a book. And then afterwards, it turned into like, wow, this can be a really important fuel for building your career. Because the more that you credentialize, the more that people view you as an authority, like, the easier it is to get the, the kinds of jobs that you want, 
to work with the kind of people that you want, you know, to attract other people who are also very talented and, and ambitious and going places. That's, um, that's, that's really, really great, um, story. Um, especially the, uh, the way you, you emphasize, you know, your own, um, activity when it comes to, um, you know, gaining notoriety and, and, and getting attention. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, did, um, did Addison Wesley approach you or did you approach them with the idea for your first book? Uh, Deborah approached Kurt Hibbs, who was an early figure in the in the Ruby blogging community, and and who I th I think wrote some some of the early Rubies that were uh, popular. He he worked at Boeing. I don't, I haven't heard from him in years. I, I hope he's okay. But uh, Deborah Williams is a editor at Addison Wesley, who I adore. She I owe her a lot. Uh, she approached him and then he re recommended me because he just knew me from my blog, you know? So she walked up to me, uh, and just kind of cold, uh, presented me with an offer to, to get involved in writing a book at the 2005 in San Diego. I'm curious. Um, it's, um, it's something you mentioned about, um, starting to learn, uh, programming when you were in grade three. Um, and I think this is something we'll probably return to later because I know that Education is something um, that that's been an important part of many of the projects that you've been involved in, and I'm wondering. I think it's probably there are probably people listening who who wish they'd had the opportunity to start learning programming at school at grade three. Were you at a special kind of school in some way, or was it just a kind of unique circumstance? I don't think it was that unique for its era. I mean, it it was uh, elementary school in New Jersey and in, in Hackensack with. Uh, which is the county seat of Bergen County, which is a somewhat well-to-do county, I guess. I mean, I didn't grow up in a well-to-do area. I was in a working-class uh, neighborhood and working-class parents. So um, I I've once saw that the that particular era, there was like a population dip. Uh, I guess it was kind of like after the boomers uh, sort of thing. And the the schools were relatively well funded in relation to the amount of sad because the population dips, which kind of gives you a little bit of insight into how macro trends kind of play out in people's lives. It's, it's kind of amazing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, uh, one of the, um, companies you've been involved with is, um, Andela. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. Andela. Yeah. Andela. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I, I was looking at it and on its website, it says it, um, integrates full-time, uh, genius level remote software developers into your team. Yeah. And I remember that, and I, and I read it a little bit about your involvement. Um, it says it works with fortune 500 companies to find untapped talent from around the world. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what, what your contribution was to the company, um, when you got there. Cause I, I, I read that you, you sort of changed things a little bit. Oh, sure. Happily. Um, so I joined very early on as CTO and, uh, brought, Kind of that you know real world experience in running a consultancy uh, because the business model is to find very very intelligent um, I, I don't know about genius level but certainly you know top five to ten percentile in terms of problem solving capability uh, in Africa so we operate in Kenya and Nigeria um, I'm still involved as an advisor and, and very close to the CEO Jeremy Johnson um, but what what we did there was to 
find a way to put some of these young Nigerians and now Kenyans to, to work, giving them opportunities that they clearly do not have uh, on their own. You know, it, it's very hard without access to stable power, uh, stable internet. And then the, uh, yes, I think one of my most significant contributions there that I'm most proud of is that uh, we, we realized early on that it, it wasn't just infrastructure concerns, right? It's not just safety and, and electricity and internet. Once you have to just figure out the technology on your own, you know, there's, there's so much wealth of information online, right? That you can get, um, I mean, it's a, it's a dirty word to, to authors and media in general, but I mean, with piracy and whatever, or like you can get a complete library of, of pretty much any classic book, you know, that you that you want to get in the field, right? It might be an outdated version or whatnot, but but the access is there if you have the internet. What you don't have, and this this is what I started figuring out about six months in, in a very uh, vivid way, is a lot of common sense. What we would consider common sense about uh, business environment, how to deal with Western clients, what expectations are around creativity and problem solving, what expectations, what kind of pushback you can give. If someone's telling you to do something that you think is not the right thing, or if you are not capable of doing what they're asking you to do. Um, so that changed my whole pedagogical approach. Um, and I, I pretty much flipped it on its head where we were putting a lot of emphasis on, on basic technology training and, and basic computer science concepts. In the beginning, I started realizing now we, we need to really put a lot of emphasis on quote unquote, soft skills, um, communication skills, how to build trust, how to keep trust, how to, um, how to learn, how to function on a team, how to apply uh, creative problem solving, you know, how to trust your own intellect when it's appropriate or, or lean on others, you know, that sort of thing. And the mechanism for doing so was a very, very heavy uh, curriculum of uh, improv training, actually. So a lot of people are familiar with comedic improv. You know, the show Whose Line Is It Anyway, where Drew Carey was very popular in the United States and whatnot. Uh, what less people is a field called applied improv or implied, uh, applied improvisation, probably has a couple thousand practitioners around the world. Consultants who come uh, a lot of times from the comedic improv background, but they do business consulting. Um, and they, you know, they go to companies and they, they do these improv kinds of activities, improv games. Some are verbatim, but the idea is to get people to open up, come out of their shells. Uh, in Nigeria, that was especially important because the, uh, the young people, and in particular the women, the young women are just kind of culturally trained to be very quiet and shy, um, and especially around uh, any sort of authority figure or anyone that they you know, look up to. It's very hard to get them to come out of their shell. So we did a lot of work. Um, you know, five to six hours a day for 30 days a program called month one where we went over everything starting with the basic uh you know yes and kind of principle of improv which is that you you know being constructive so finding a way to build on what someone else is is adding you know trusting their intentions and then finding a way to build on instead of tearing down uh all the way through um you know, these opening up kind of exercises that I'm talking about all the way towards things that we kind of learn uh, 
naturally here in the States, uh, you know, even around some tough topics like sexual harassment and what's appropriate and what's not, things like that. Just basically not taking anything for granted. <laughs> um, and the results have been remarkable. You know, uh, I think that the Arendellen, um, you know, consultants that are now remote team members uh, to about 50 companies uh, here in the States and in Europe, you know, they fit in uh, very naturally, you know, the, the way that um, other remote team members would fit in. You know, it's not, not experience that some that people may be used to with working with offshore teams. And how does Andela find people? It's actually, you know, the population dynamics are such that it's not hard to find people. They, they have less than a 1% acceptance rate. So, um, you, you know, it's just the combination and kind of uh, social marketing and whatnot. And now there's a lot of word of mouth because the opportunity is so awesome, really, if, you know, um, you don't have to have any sort of formal education in computing. You don't have to have uh, any particular family connections. You don't have to have money. You, you don't have to have anything. If you pass a battery of uh, tests and then there's an interview process and then that, that knocks the pool down significantly and then those people are invited to come to one of our facilities and do a um, two-week uh, where they get a very intensive and fast-paced training in JavaScript or Ruby or now Python. And the idea, the idea there is not so much training as to see what their grit and determination is because you, you push them really, really hard and, and the vast majority of them don't have real programming experience that they're bringing to the table. So you push them really hard and then you see who comes out the end. And, you know, so out of a class of 20 in the boot camp, we may hire five to 10. But at that point, we give you a, a four-year contract. Uh, and you have a job uh, paying um, a middle-class salary. Uh, you get subsidized food, subsidized housing. Uh, you get, you know, a lot of them get to live on our campus. Um, and it's, uh, the, the audacious goal is within 10 years to train 100,000 of these young Africans and, and inject them into the global workforce. Uh, and that, uh, you know, if, if we achieve that or even a fraction of that, it's, uh, it would make a pretty big uh, social impact in Africa. So it, it, it's really one of those startup situations that was very, very exciting and rewarding, you know, personally, not, not just in monetary sense, but, but also in terms of uh, purpose. You know what we're doing. That that's fantastic. I, I didn't know that the um, the goals were so ambitious and uh, positive. That's that's just great. Um, and that leads me to ask you about to you, um, where you're senior mm -hmm. vice president of engineering now. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what um, to you is doing and what your role is there. Yeah, sure. So um, as I was as I was starting to get um, kind of exa exhausted with the travel and the intensity of uh, of working with Andela. Um, I needed to, I need to take a little bit of a break and uh, I got married. I moved to New York from Atlanta. So like had a bunch of life changes. Um, my daughter Taylor went to college. So, um, and to kind of a sister company to Andela, a lot of the same, uh, early investors, uh, the CEO, Jeremy Johnson was one of the founders of TU. Uh, so, uh, the CTO of, uh, TU kind of made me an offer that I couldn't refuse, uh, to come. Uh, help uh, really uh, take their engineering department to the next level uh, over there. So to use a successful startup, since successful New York startup story, 
uh, IPO'd, uh, I think about 18 months ago. Um, so about eight years old, a um, lot of market traction, a lot of credibility, a lot of, uh, you know, really good brands as associated with us, Yale, NYU, um, UNC, UCLA, you know, and they have, you know, we have, we have a good thing going on. Like we have a platform, uh, along with the services that we provide to these schools so that they can get their graduate programs online. And what's, uh, what's amazing about what's happening there is that the richer of graduate education, you know, the, the best for a graduate program is one that has some real world experience that has gone out and, you know, kind of gotten some maturity and now their career and their life to the next level. Um, but at that point, a lot of them have lives already, you know, they have, they have budding careers, uh, or maybe established careers, you know, for a lot of the executives and professionals, uh, they may have kids, you know, they may, hence they may not be able to, to move and do school full time, uh, in a particular geographic region. So what we give them is the ability to just work on it from home, you know, remotely while still getting the full experience, uh, you know, and, and, in a lot of cases with better outcomes that they would get uh, in person on campus. Uh, you know, uh, we now have programs that have been going on for over five years and we can start to track the outcomes and we see actually having better outcomes. So um, the, the challenge there uh, for, for me personally, what keeps it interesting is that it is a, you know, it is a startup that, went big and has done well. Uh, and we now have a technology department with over a hundred people. Um, the vast majority of whom are, are really great, really talented, really energetic. Um, and then it's just a question, how do you harness that talent, uh, and to take us to the next level, you know, um, we, we have a certain amount of partnership programs now, but like, how do we increase that by multiples, you know? Uh, and that involves scaling technology is always, you know, kind of a fun challenge. And, uh, for me, uh, you know, coming back to an environment where there's bigger teams, there's bigger coordination and kind of orchestration of effort, um, where there's, you know, more room for, uh, applying kind of, um, enterprise technology or pure kind of like looking at the big picture, looking at strategy around it, you know, that kind of takes me back to. Uh, my days at ThoughtWorks working with, uh, you know, bigger Fortune 100 companies and CIOs offices and CTOs and kind of, you know, doing some pretty interesting large-scale work. So um, it's been amazing. I, I, w I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that it's something that I would have been super interested in, like, you know, especially like, let's say, five, six years ago when I was running half and doing mostly kind of, you know, smaller startup kind of stuff. But, um, you know, life is more interesting when you, when you move to different kind of areas of, uh, of interest, you know, of, uh, of pursuit. And, and in this case, uh, these, these larger scale systems are starting to become really, really interesting to me. Great, great. Um, before um, I move on to asking you about um, some of your, your book projects, um, I'd just like to go back a little bit to what you were um, saying about, about piracy. Um, you know that... Um, at LeanPub, um, we're very, um, we have strong opinions about, about things like, um, DRM, digital rights management, yeah. um, around, around eBooks. 
and I was just wondering if you could, because uh, I, I have no idea, but what, what's your, what's your opinion about um, DRM and, and eBooks? Um, I think that one of the beautiful things about LeanPub is that it makes it real easy to, to get the material into people's hands. And if the author wants to, uh, you know, put it at an affordable price point, um, that puts it into even more people's hands, you know, but, uh, having firsthand experience with developing, uh, markets, I mean, it's not the fact that a young person in Nigeria can go to one of these piracy websites and, you know, download the latest book on JavaScript or whatever. That's not taking money out of the author's hands <laughs> because they don't have the money to pay for it anyway. And there's, there's no one to pay for it for them. Um, so in terms of just kind of the bigger of global equality, I mean, the fact that there, the fact that a lot of people, I mean, this not, you don't necessarily have to go to Africa, this, you know, um, I know that a lot of us when we were younger, um, you know, pirated things like, uh, Photoshop, you know, because it was too freaking expensive to, to actually pay for it if you're nothing to do with it. But you know what? Now, if you use it, uh, you pay for it. It sure helps that they, you know, created like a subscription model where you can pay like 10 bucks a month or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm generally not a fan of, of DRM at all. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was involved in the hacking scene, BBSs and things like that early on. So, you know, I come from a hacker background, um, never really been that, you know, super concerned about it because, you know, the, the, the market is out there. You know, I went with a traditional publisher with Addison Wesley because it was just the thing that you did. And then I, I continued going with traditional publishers after that, you know, Lean Enterprises on Wiley. You know, there's a big professional market out there that pays for it. Safari's great. Subscription income, you know, from Safari's great. Stuff, stuff like that. If you're trying to credentialize, you know, if you're trying to get started, it's great to go with traditional publishers. They'll, they'll do whatever they're going to do. You know, I'd, I'd default to, to getting the material in people's hands, uh, helping them out and like basically looking at it as if if people are not paying for your material is probably because they can't afford to pay for it or they're just checking it out and you're you'll get you'll get it back to you somehow later. Yeah, that's 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 great. I mean, that's that's very I've got to say that's very consistent with our experience as well, especially over the last year where we've had um, some of our most successful books have been by people who are who are providing courses um, online, um, in, in particular through Coursera, actually. Um, and for them, um, the variable pricing that you can do on LeanPub was profoundly, I mean, was, was a necessary condition because they had a lot of students who couldn't necessarily afford um, to pay for books, um, and they did not want to exclude them um, from participating. But they also had a lot of people who wanted who wanted to pay, um, and so allowing the um, the reader the choice to pay when when and whether they can or not um, was really crucial, and that seems to be an interesting thing that people are kind of coming to terms with with the globalized marketplace um, that the internet offers, and especially in in education. I, I think it's a really smart move, and um, you know, and I can. I can tell the listeners from from experience, uh, you know, with variable pricing, it's like just because you set something at a low price doesn't mean that people won't pay the higher price. Yeah, 
Um, so moving on to your books, um, your, your, some of your books on LeanPub have had sort of interesting histories and in a way, the kind of, in some ways, the ideal, ideal LeanPub books. Um, so I guess I'd like to ask you first about um, the lean enterprise, how corporations can innovate like startups. Um, first, I guess I'd just like to ask you what, what the book's about and, and why you chose to, to write it. Um, yeah, so my partner, uh, Trevor Owens, and, and I, uh, we, we have a company called Javelin. I'm not actively involved with it anymore, but before that, it was called the Lean Startup Machine. So and, and tens of thousands of people took the, did the Lean Startup Machine experience uh, over the weekend, you know, over the course of the last five years, and have um, gotten a taste of what Lean Startup is about. Uh, Eric Ries, of course, wrote the best-selling book the lean startup and like if you look at the way that he launches his books i think it's a you know everyone has a lot to learn all of us have a lot to learn about sort of thing he's certainly one of the biggest success stories for doing that sort of thing specifically with books seriously look at his latest book <laughs> um but we uh you know kind of started a whole business on applying lean startup um and helping uh, entrepreneurs and want to be entrepreneurs, you know, to figure out how to not waste their hard-earned savings and like years of their life pursuing ideas that didn't make sense. Um, and then over the course of the years of doing that and getting involved uh, in building some enterprise software around it, like basically trying to set up um, the the go-to, you know, kind of web application for running your lean startup experiments. Uh, we talked to a lot of corporations like Nordstrom, GE, et cetera, that do lean startup at a large scale. And uh, we started learning a lot about how to apply lean startup. And, uh, you know, one thing led to, the, to another. And we, we, put, we pitched this book idea to Wiley to uh, basically talk about how to apply lean startup um, with the target audience being senior management and the C-suite. Um, basically, you know, how to establish what we call innovation colonies, uh, essentially taking the experience that you would get at, like, let's say, a Techstars accelerator, um, but doing it within the context of a corporation. Um, so it, it's, it's, very, it's a very business-heavy topic. Um, it's not for, like, the average consumer <laughs> or the average technology programmers, you know, not necessarily going to get a lot of that out of that book uh, other than maybe things that they can pass along up the chain. Uh, but we do see it as our contribution to trying to create, you know, friendlier environments and corporations for innovation and, and for entrepreneurship in general. On that note, um, how does one get around the bureaucracy in large companies where it is sort of not necessarily explicitly, but, um, sort of systemically hostile to sort of lean startup um, uh, philosophies. I mean, I know Nordstrom, for example, is just fantastic. I've had some experience with, with people from Nordstrom, and they're just great about, about innovating and looking for new things. But, you know, we've all had encounters with, with companies that aren't like that. Um, and so how does one, you know, for example, if, if I were, say, uh, you know, in the C-suite in a company that had uh, a sort of foot dragging bureaucracy. How would I go about introducing lean startup technology? Uh, it, it really has to be introduced. I mean, you can do it. 
So, so there's two answers to that. I mean, you can apply lean startup as a product manager, uh, or, you know, as a general manager, you know, someone who's for describing the parameters of success, the more objective that you get, uh, the more that you rely on build, measure, learn cycles within your business. That's how you introduce it at the grassroots. And, um, and that's generally successful. You know, that, that's generally viewed as a good thing. And it's something that, you know, managers and, and middle executives can play up as, you know, doing things the right way, let's say. And it can have concrete business benefits. As far as doing an end run around bureaucracy, I mean, that really has to come from the C-suite, the executive level. And, uh, you know, the bigger corporations are all tuned into it, at, you know, to some degree or another. Uh, I have a friend named Alan who's the CTO at Coca-Cola. And I mean, he's, he's been heavily, heavily involved in, in innovation kind of activities, you know, and you got to realize these, these sorts of things take different forms. You know, sometimes it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, skunk work. Sometimes it's some sort of things, but um, where it really starts getting, I think, super interesting. And what we talk, talk about is, is, when those companies start sharing a significant amount of equity. So when they within, but they stay hooked in at a, at the level that a, a VC would be hooked into early stage startups. And the idea is to give people the actual freedom. The, the reason we call it innovation colony is because we, we think it's a throwback to people leaving motherlands and going on a long and dangerous, you know, journey out to the colonies to, to strike their fortune. Um, did the colonious, uh, co colonial empires benefit from that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they would occasionally get shiploads of goods and, you know, gold coins and shit, uh, going back home. Um, was it dangerous Did they occasionally lose people? Yeah, sure. All the time. But, uh, you know, it's the whole risk reward thing. Um, we think that big innovation cannot happen and in, in, you know, the, um, uh, in the bosom of a big enterprise where you're, you know, you're, you really can't fail. You have that big safety net, like, Hey, you tried move on to something else. You know, uh, you really have to go out and take the kind of risks that, that startup entrepreneurs take. And you've, um, you've taken some of these, um, principles, I think, and, and applied them to, to your books. I mean, uh, you mentioned Eric Reese before the first, the first lean pub book was an Eric Reese book, um, that was from his blog, I think, and was sort of the, in a sense, a kind of predecessor to the lean startup. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I know that your books in particular, so you said the lean enterprise, um, obviously it's a Wiley book. You said you pitched it to Wiley, but it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was published in progress on lean pub before it was completed. It absolutely was. And I've, I've blogged, you know, to prospective authors saying, Hey, do that. That's the way to do it because the traditional publishers don't see it as cannibalizing their sales. Um, so it provides a way to get a significant amount of income. I mean, if you are already a known entity and you have the ability to market your lean pub book, uh, as you well know, <laughs> you, you see the actual numbers, right? Uh, you can make tens of thousands more before the book is even anywhere near a formal publisher. And then you put it in the hands of the publisher and they put it through their own marketing channels and, and whatnot. Um, you make a substantially less percentage on a royalty basis, but I think you read audience so it, it kind of equals out so did you did you have the deal with wiley for the lean enterprise before you started publishing it in progress on lean pub yes i mean we went through a very compressed cycle the whole thing 
started and, and was uh, in print in six months. Maybe not in print, but, you know, kind of finished in six months. So, uh, yeah, I believe we did. I mean, I already had, a, uh, I already had the Rails uh, four-way on LeanPub at that point. I had already negotiated that with, at least I was kind of familiar with how to do that. And I, I just, I'm just really curious. I mean, you know, obviously we were so excited to see when the Rails four-way, you know, popped up on LeanPub and when, when you, when you came on board um, and us, of course the Lean Enterprise as well. And was, was that um, a difficult argument that you, or, or case that you had to make for this process? Because it's something that we think, I mean, we think all books should do it, um, you know, publish in progress on, on something like LeanPub and that before um, the um, gets taken up into the machine of the um, of the large publisher was that it, it it didn't but you know i'm gonna i'm gonna try to be humble and admit that i'm you know i'm probably a little bit of an outlier i mean i have a very good relationship with them they trust me i trust them uh so i don't know what that experience would be like for someone who didn't already have a track record and relationships in place yeah i know that that totally makes sense i mean our our hope is that it becomes somewhat conventional um, and, and an understood thing for, especially someone who's starting out and doesn't have a profile yet, excuse me, <clears throat> to, um, to publish, to start publishing their own book in progress and then hopefully get taken up um, by a publisher um, if the book gets traction and if they can demonstrate that they're, that they're a good writer. Yeah, the, the biggest challenge I think is getting that traction, um, you know, and actually attracting, like if, if you, you're a for the traditional publisher, at least in the technical in the technical world. Well, first of all, actually, it's 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 not that hard to get signed to a traditional publisher this day. You know, I, I feel like a lot of the the editors out there are actually you know following blogs and things and reaching out. Um, and you know, myself, I start I I got a. Um, a lot of traction on the on the first blog post I did on serverless on Medium had like fifteen thousand reads. I got a couple different cold emails from publishers saying, "Hey, would you like to put this on our?" You know, um, got reached out from uh, No Starch and from A Press and you know, p- people who I didn't have relationships with already. And it's like, no, it's okay. You know, <laughs> I'm good. Um, so so. I can't be the only one that's happening with. I'm guessing that they're, you know, they're going out and reaching out because it doesn't really cost them very much to to develop an author to to sign someone. Um, and I think that increasingly, you don't need them as much <laughs> uh, because there's kind of this uh, great ecosystem of blogs and and LeanPub is certainly part of it um, that can can credentialize you and you can succeed and reach a wide audience without needing them. So. I think um, that traditional publishers are going to be increasingly uh, in a somewhat of a difficult situation, <laughs> you know, moving forward. To, to, uh, as the same as the, the case of record labels and like any sort of traditional content curators, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the subject of serverless, so you're going to be launching it um, within the next the next week or so. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us about uh, what what it's about. Yes, uh, of course. Uh, uh, so this is rapidly becoming one of my favorite subjects. Um, I love catching, um, you know, kind of new technology waves while uh, while there's still a chance to get re- you know really good momentum out of it. And this this is 
in the case of a, um, a movement, that being microservices, which is um, very rapidly ascending the, the Gartner hype cycle, you know, it's just kind of starting to be on everyone's minds. Um, and then I've, I've been a fan of the concept for years now. Uh, you know, it's certainly not like something totally new. Um, in earlier stages of my career, I was involved with distributed computing and SOA. Uh, and one of my earliest uh, applications that I worked on used something Forte, uh, which at the time was one of the most advanced uh, kind of uh, object-oriented uh, distributed application environments. Like you basically you wrote you wrote your objects, and then there's there had this had this whole UI for distributing them over different nodes in your network and things like that. Um, so I know, I know a lot about that stuff over the years and what I, what I see is that it's really kind of coming together in a way that is enabled by current technology, um, that we haven't seen before. Um, Lambda, uh, is really kind of at the heart of it. It's a new product from Amazon web services that lets you upload functions and, and run them in the fabric of Amazon's cloud computing, uh, platform without needing uh, to provision servers. And that is, for, for someone like me, that's very, very powerful. Like uh, over the years, I've gotten involved in kind of countless, uh, you know, ventures and, you know, so the whole lean startup thing, like wanting to, to put things out there, but you want, want to play that they're capable of scaling without having to scramble um, and, you know, and lose whatever, for treading, but you don't want to invest a whole bunch either, you know. And there's this notion of T approximating or T uh, as it's the T variable representing, you know, development time or cost, and what as it approaches zero. <laughs> um, so you know, with with technology and everything going the way that it is, you're able to to throw together software in a, in a postmodern way you know, cobble together third-party SaaS services and APIs and libraries and open source and things very rapidly. But the, the final missing piece is, you know, how do you, how do you pay for it if you want something that's capable of scaling? Um, and I think this answer is that effectively. And this, this applies uh, both to startups and also uh, at a place like to you where um, I want to build systems that scale uh, but I also want to build them in a maximally modular and maintainable way. Um, you know, and I want my developers to have a lot of power over those, uh, you know, environments and, and being able to, to really leverage uh, all the tools at their disposal and maintaining big monstrous monolithic applications that have been in service for years. And now you, you don't know that you're not going to break them, you know, pretty much anytime you touch them. No matter how good your test coverage is and whatnot, it just be, things become very brittle after they've been in production for a while. Um, microservices, uh, you know, this approach that that we're advocating with the book, man, it, it's just an amazing new world, right? Like these, the microservices are basically disposable. Um, you know, you don't you don't really modify. You know, once they're in service, they they have a long lifetime. They're kind of a cell, you know, until they become obsolete. Uh, um, when they become obsolete because you need them to do something differently, um, in the best cases, you just deploy the new version alongside it. Uh, and then you can go about in a very methodical way testing whether it does what you need it to do 
uh, whether it doesn't, you know, introduce regressions, uh, whether it performs, you know, you can start shifting traffic over to it. You can leave the legacy microservice production to service old clients. I mean, it's just a, it's a very, very different world than, than what we're used to. So, yeah. So um, for, for people listening who might not be, might not be all that familiar with microservices, can you give me an, an, maybe an, an example um, that you've had in your experience with something like that? Um, where it made a big difference. Yeah, um, the at, at TU we do a lot of um, transformation um, of files uh, from. You know, basically, we integrate with these legacy systems at schools. Um, with, without getting into too much details, uh, you know, there's you can think about it as 20 different partners that all have their all, you know, it's all kind of a very similar process, but um, each slightly different. So do you develop a monolithic application and clone it 20 times uh, and then tweak each one? I mean, that's one way of going about it. Or do you spend the time, uh, you know, kind of engineering that monolithic application and have all the different adapters and configurations and strategies and, you know, all the things you needed to have in order to be configurable for each case. Um, but then every time you deploy it, you, you know, got to worry that you, you know, you got to test every single integration or do you decompose the problem into a, um, a set of microservice does what it does really, really well, uh, you know, and collaborate with each other over a messaging bus, which is my favorite approach. Uh, so that, um, you know, one can add or, you know, one can take it, uh, 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 you know, read the format and it goes, oh, yeah, I know this format. You know, so it translates it, puts it back on the bus. Another service goes, oh, here's a translated, you know, it's a, here, here's my transcript in a canonical day. What to do with this? So it grabs it and it dissects it and identifies, you know, who is the student involved, you, you know, that sort of thing. That's sort of decomposition without getting into too much detail. The example I use in the book is um, is this venture called Food Button, uh, which is the easiest way to get a meal. So some of you, you know, can probably imagine being at your desk and you're working and you're in the middle of something. The last thing you want to do is stop and think about what you're going to eat, but you need to have lunch. So I've, I've dreamed about this idea time of uh, just being able to hit a button on an app or um a physical button on the desk or whatever, you know, on my Apple watch, uh, and 30 to 60 minutes later, magically food appears. Boom. Uh, I'm not a picky eater. If you're a picky eater, you will not like this idea, but if you're not a picky eater like, like me, you will love this idea, which is button 30, 60 minutes later, magically food appears. It's like, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to pay for it. It's like automatically gets charged and everything like that. So yeah, that, that's um, that's that's a really fantastic idea. Um, <laughs> I was wondering actually when you were describing some of the the issues with say dealing with twenty different systems, that reminded me of um, a, well, a friend of mine who works in sort of like you know government healthcare startup land, and it reminds me of a lot of you know. I, I know you've had some of these sort of scandals in the states as well, where um, you know people trying to deal with legacy um, government systems, um, it's very very difficult often to. Um, you know, change things because there are so many legacy, mm -hmm. legacy systems with, you know, sort of technology from de different decades. 
Um, is microservices the kind of thing that, that people engaged in those kinds of very, very large projects could, could use to solve some of those problems? Yeah, well, I, I think decomposition is a trend that, you know, predates microservices. Um, and generally speaking, that's part of the life cycle of a whole project anyway, is that eventually you start breaking pieces off of it, you know, into smaller bits and pieces that might be new versions of functionality or it might just be things that make sense to partition logically. Uh, if you read... Um, microservices by Sam Newman, you know, it's like basically he makes the case for never or maybe not never, but not starting with a microservices approach from day one, like basically starting normally with a monolith and then breaking it off. Uh, I just really have to do um, not so much with the approach overall, but like the details of what's involved. So for instance, uh, when you, when you go microservices, you, uh, decentralize your data so you no longer have kind of a, a you know a one repository to, to rule them all one relational store behind everything um, each microservice has its own repository you get into these polyglot persistence uh, so-called polyglot persistence situations where you know one microservice is backed by MySQL another one's backed by Mongo Another one's backed by Cassandra. You got your user sessions is backed by Redis, you know, and whatnot. Um, and you start having this data that's, uh, you know, kind of fractured over different kinds of stores in different ways, different schemas. Uh, it's no longer clear how you do a transaction. And the truth is you probably don't, which means that your developers have to be familiar with the cap theorem. Uh, you know, have to understand how kind of these new breed systems like uh, like Dynamo, you know, favor uh, partition data and cluster over consistency. So it means your your systems has have to accommodate eventual consistency. These are heady topics for your average developer. You know, this starts to take them beyond their comfort. Uh, you know, imagine kind of like your average Rails developer going, but I just want to write a controller and some active record, you know, or whatever. And, and, you know, I've had, I'd, I've had some pushback already from friends, um, you know, who are kind of agile fanatics and, you know, default to Yagni, you ain't going to need that, right? You, you ain't going to need it. And like, what are you doing? You know, kind of overcomplicating everything. I was going, well, yeah, I agree. I mean, you can start, you, you know, you can definitely start with that approach, but there's some problems that, that, that by their very nature, you know, right, right off the bat, you know, that you're going to need to scale, you know that you're going to be able to decompose. Uh, then it's just right talent to be able to execute that. And I think that the the mix of skills that you have to pick up, you know, like the mix of skills that we discuss in the book, um, you know, I'm basically planning for this book to be a general reference and also a really solid primer into microservices uh, and kind of the patterns around. I called it patterns of modern application architecture because I see that this is kind of the way that the future is going to be built. You know, there's your, your application is no longer just a simple three layer beast with a front end and it talks to a database on the other side. We got the internet of things where, you know, you got restful APIs for everything. You got mobile clients, you got web clients, uh, you got teams that are actually smart and want to test their shit. So, you know, that the, you have to be able to mock things. There's a whole kind of like modern, uh, realization of what uh, Alistair Coburn called, you know, hexagonal 
architecture and like making sure that your application has ports and that lies in a way that I really haven't seen before uh, with this serverless mi microservice approach for you at the functional level, you deploy them independently. Um, you, you know, you pay for them in a metered way. I mean, it's, it's like more and more, I just think that in the future, people are going to look back at what we, we did with servers and they're going to think it's like contacting the electric company because you need service and they arrange with you to set up a, a little power plant on their premises. It's ridiculous, right? Like you wouldn't think about it that way, but it, but it's very, it's very similar to what we do now. You know, the abstraction of a server is not part of my domain. Why, why do I need to think about it? So, so is the um, target audience for this? I mean, is it, is it uh, everybody who works in software Everyone. development? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that was one of my questions. I my favorite to get kind of book. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds it sounds like it's um, uh, making an argument as well, which is uh, which is fascinating. And those are the, the best books, right? Yeah, it's it, and and I'm also trying to write in an evergreen way. So, like one my my biggest adjective so far has been whether to make it specific to Amazon Web Services, but they have a million customers, <laughs> you know, they're dominant. Um, I'm not, I'm not too afraid to, to go that route. And they're, they're really killing it when it comes to the pace of, of innovation there, like Lambda, API Gateway, Dynamo, uh, the whole story that they're putting together and the way it ties together, I think is, is an amazing platform and it's, it's not one I mind uh, uh, aligning with. Um, just for any, any uh, authors listening or potential authors, I was wondering what your what your plans are around the launch. Yeah, so I've been, um, you know, I, ha I have my I have my personal mailing list, uh, which is uh, in the thousands. Um, you know, I have Twitter following stuff like that. Like I haven't I've been heads down working in the book, so I honestly haven't thought too much about the launch, other than to to reach certain people, yourself included. Um, you know, I'm also going to have uh, friends and allies that uh, have aligned with the uh with the book uh tweet about it um you know tim bray is uh is high up uh, over at amazon web services he's a figure that um a lot of us you know know and love uh you know um so i'm sure he's going to support the book uh, i have you know other people that that i can call upon so i just kind of leverage my network get the word out um and then we'll continue to work heavily on it. Um, you know, it's strategic for me in, in various senses. It's also I'm also writing it uh, for my team at TU because I expect that it's going to increasingly be a part of our future there. Uh, so it helps to have you know your different and your work and and play kind of interests aligned in that way. Uh, it's kind of the optimal way to do it, I think. Um, if I was trying to do this while running Hashrock, could I'm doing. Uh, monolithic rails app it just wouldn't happen you know uh, leverage your strengths that's my advice to for the authors you know fantastic um yeah thanks for that uh, it, it's it's funny you know when when one's already sort of done things a few times it can often be sort of easy to uh oh, uh sort of underestimate one's um one's strengths and what one's learned and you know like advice like that is actually really really helpful for people who are just sort of figuring figuring things out i, th I think if you're struggling you know, if you're struggling with your first book, uh, realize that it does get easier. <laughs> uh, that much, you know, that much is already, I can, I can tell, uh, this book, I kind of launched into it and yeah, I had a lot of energy, but like just knowing 
the workflow, uh, knowing how to assemble a team, uh, you know, I have a small team of collaborators and I'm, the, I'm probably going to build it. Um, realize that books are generally team efforts, you know, you need competent reviewers and collaborators to, you know, kind of give back. If you want to write a quality book, I guess that's the disclaimer. Uh, and, you know, I'm generally very that I've personally bought in lean pub. Um, but you know, there is differing level levels of quality, I, I suppose. If you go into, uh, you know, some of the Kindle books, like I checked out some of the Kindle books on microservices and they were terrible, uh, you know, kind of the low, the low budget books. Um, if you want to build a quality product, like you can't just do it on your own. You, you need people to review it you need, you need people to check your, you know, to do the editing and stuff like that. Uh, you need a cover designer, <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a team effort to, to get the best result. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, I guess I just have one more question. Um, uh, you know, customer development is very important for us at LeanPub. And um, I guess if there's, if there's one thing or maybe even more than one thing that we could do to improve LeanPub or add to it uh, that sort of occurred to you in the production of this book, um, what would that be? Uh, you know, I, I sent a note over to Peter um, the and I think it's coming in Markua. Am I saying that right? The the ability to pull in um, source code from uh, from a URL would be awesome. Um, because in, in this book, I'm like I'm co-developing the food button source code together with uh, the book. And at first, I was like, "Oh wow! If I could only do like a Git sub module, because I, I developed the book in in Lean Pub flavored Markdown with Git. Um, if I could pull in a sub module, it'd be it'd be great because then I could you know have the the source code up to date. But then that's complicated even from a personal workflow standpoint. So I was like, "Hey, what actually being able being able to reference a, a GitHub URL? Looking forward to seeing that. Great, cool." All right. Well, um, thanks a lot for a really great talk, and thanks for being on the Lean Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author, Obi Wan. This was this was great. Thank you, guys. I love you guys for real. <laughs>